0: everybody doing this morning? I always like how responsive Sam is. It's like, whenever I ask anything, you always respond and stuff. I feel, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like somebody's listening. At least one person. Thank you. Thank you. I know you, I heard you too. I heard you too, but Sam's been here a little bit longer, and so uh, I I, I kind of wanted to, you know, recognize this. Not for long. He was senior this year? Oh man, after this, I'm Daniel, you're going to have to step up. You're going to have to acknowledge each time. Okay. All right, so uh, we are picking up in Luke chapter 13. Uh, last week, Megan finished out uh, chapter 12, obviously, if we're picking up in uh, Luke 13 today. Um, so last week, uh, Megan pointed out, while she was finishing up chapter 12, uh, that Jesus was making a point of us being ready for his return, and so in chapter 13, he kind of picks up with this same idea, um, but it's a lot more grim. It's not necessarily, hey, be ready for Jesus' return, but it's one of the ideas about you don't know when you're going to die. Kind of thing. So it starts a little bit more grim, but we're not gonna we're not gonna just sit and dwell in the the grimness of hey you you don't know when you're gonna die. So what we're gonna start in, and we're gonna look at verses one through five, and we're gonna see this story. uh, Actually, not just the story, but these news that some of the Jews come and bring to Jesus and say, hey, guess look what happened here. Uh, And then we're gonna see really what's at the heart of what they're trying to tell Jesus because he comes back and. Uh, mentions uh, another thing of news that happened. So, and starting in verse 1, it says, at that time, some people came and reported to him, that is Jesus, uh, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Uh, So, oftentimes, when we think of Pilate, we think about uh, the end of Jesus' ministry when he's about to be crucified, and uh, Pilate kind of seems to be some Nice dude. He seems very logical and stuff. Um, but when we see the rest of Scripture, we see well, he really wasn't that nice to the Jews because what is believed here in this story. This is actually the only reported incidence of incident of this story. Uh, is that while they were performing their sacrifices, that Pilate just had a bunch of Jews killed. And that's what they mean by him mixing their blood. And so we see Pilate wasn't just this, oh, I'm, I'm a really thoughtful person. I'm going to be nice to you, Jesus, and just pass you on. Uh, he, he really wasn't that nice to the Jews. Uh, so they come and tell Jesus the story. Okay, Pilate just did this. And then It continues, and Jesus responded, it says, and he responded to them, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed. Do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Now, this is where it gets kind of like, wait a minute, this is a little bit of gloom and doom. Uh, Last time Jesus was saying, hey, be prepared for when I come back. This time he's kind of like, you know, this, you tell me about how Pilate killed these people and this tower fell on these people. Well, be prepared because you don't know when you're going to die. So really what's going on here is, Jesus is warning these people that brought him the news. He's warning these people about being self-righteous and about their need to repent. Uh, You go, well, where'd you get that from? Well, because Jesus knew their hearts. They're coming along and they're saying, hey, look at this thing, this horrible thing that just happened. And Jesus is like, well, you know, I can understand what's going on in your heart because you're basically trying to say is that this horrible thing happened to these people because you think they did something horrible. We see this uh, often throughout, uh, throughout the Gospels whenever somebody either brings somebody who has some type of ailment to Jesus. Um, there was the man that was brought to Jesus and the apostles asked him, well, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? Jesus said, neither. It's so that the son of man, Jesus himself, might be glorified. So this is kind of the same idea that Jesus is bringing up. He's not saying that this happened because of these people's sin. He's saying instead of really answering the question, he tells them, be careful, be cautious, because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. Um, And he tells them that the point that he's being made here is that uh, just because you weren't killed or this tower didn't fall on you, he's telling them, you're not righteous just because this hasn't happened to you which a lot of people thought back then, if something horrible isn't happening uh, to me or anybody that I know, then, you know, I must be good or I must be righteous. And Jesus is like, no, no, that's not, that's not what's going on here. Um, Mike McKinley says this when it comes to how we think when tragedy often befalls people. Uh, He says, when we see suffering, we need to resist the urge to draw rapid conclusion about God's purpose. So, We can take this and we can apply it to the people who brought Jesus this news. Jesus knew what was in the heart of these people bringing him the information, and they drew this conclusion that God's purpose here was to punish them in some way. But instead, he turns that information on them, and he calls them to be prepared to repent. And that's what we see in verse 5 when he tells them, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. So I want to be very clear. He's not telling them, you guys are going to get... Killed like these other ones did by Pilate, by having them just cut down, or this tower is going to fall on you. He's not saying that. Uh, But what he is saying is that if you do not repent of your sin, you will perish. Uh, And so Jesus continues verses 6 through 9, and he ends up telling this parable right after this. So he's going to try to explain it to them. Um, Don't you love when you're reading scripture, then all of a sudden. Jesus is about to explain something, and it's a parable, and you're like, man, come on, now I got to figure out what this means. So oftentimes, what we got to do is sit here, we're going to read a parable, and then we're going to try to interpret and understand this this parable. So what we're going to do for the majority of the time is try to understand and interpret these parables that Jesus tells throughout this section here. So in verses 6 through 9, pick up in verse 6, it says, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, Listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, so this is the the vine dresser, the, the man working the vineyard. He replies to him says, Sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it perhaps it will produce fruit next year. But if not, you can cut it down. So how are we to understand this parable that Jesus ends up telling just right after they bring him this horrible news, and then he warns them about not knowing when they're going to die, and then all of a sudden he tells this parable. So Jesus is referring to the Jews in this passage as being like this fig tree. Um, So the Jews, they had... Good, fertile soil around them. We can understand that that's what's going on here in this passage that the soil that this fig tree is in, it's good, it's fertile, because we see it's in a vineyard. So everything else around it's growing. Uh, Even the vine dresser talks about it being good soil, but this tree isn't producing anything. So what he's telling them, the Jews, is that, hey, you all have grown up in this good, fertile soil. So what is this good, fertile soil that the Jews are growing up in? Well, first of all, they had the law they had the prophets, so basically the law and the prophets, which were the Jewish scriptures, which is the Old Testament. He's saying, you had all of this that I, that God has given to you, which is good soil for you to grow in, for you to understand who God is and who, and to know who God is, but they rejected it. They didn't put their faith in the God who gave them this law, instead they put their faith in the works that they were doing. Um, And because their faith uh, was in having the law and doing good works, um, there's another conclusion that we can draw from this. Uh, And that's a conclusion for today. Just like the Jews that had good soil and good fertile ground, uh, all of you have good soil and good fertile ground. Well, what would your good soil and fertile ground be? Well, first of all, you have the Bible. Second, you're all here. You're at church. Uh, Third one, you may have believers in your family. But do you put your faith in those things, or do you put your faith in Jesus? And this is the question that he's asking these Jews. He's asking them, okay, where is your faith, really? Is it in the things that you've been given, or is it in Jesus himself, and the work that Jesus has done? Uh, We're going to look a little bit more at what it means about producing fruit. Uh, We're going to actually go to Galatians 5. Some of you may know Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit. But Jesus gives us a warning right before, or Paul, I should say, in this instance, gives us a warning right before he talks about what is the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, And just like Jesus is warning about not bearing good fruit or not even producing fruit at all, Paul is gonna warn us about the type of fruit that we bear when we are not bearing good fruit, when we are not putting our faith in Jesus and instead relying on the things that we do. So he says here in Galatians 19 through 21, he says, now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. He says, I am warning you about these things as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he continues, this is probably the, this is the more famous part of this passage, this is the one that you've probably heard of, and he continues in verse 22 and says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. So we see there are two different types of fruits in this passage. One of them is of the flesh, uh, that is also known as in other places as being unfruitful. And then there's the fruit of the Spirit, which comes from putting your faith in Jesus. Now, you may ask yourself, what fruit is your life marked by? And, and what would those of you—so ask yourself, what is your life marked by? And if you don't know, then ask yourself about your friends or anybody close to your friends, your family members. Ask them, what would they say your life is marked by? Does your life show that you have the fruit of the Spirit, uh, that you are producing good fruit? Or would they say, well, no, you're not producing fruit at all, or you're just producing bad fruit that we saw in the first portion of Galatians? We're going to look at this next portion here, this next section here in Matthew. Jesus, again, addresses this idea of bearing fruit and here, he gets a little bit more blatant about what it means to not bear fruit. So here in Matthew 7:16 through 20, he says you'll recognize them by their fruit. He's talking specifically about people who follow him, people who put their faith and trust in him. And he says, you'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. So, just as the fig tree in, in Luke, these trees are in good, fertile ground, but only one is good, and the other, Jesus says, should be cut down and thrown into the fire. The warning Jesus gives is the same as what we saw in the first few verses of chapter 13. If your faith is not in Jesus, you will perish. So the cutting down and the throwing into the fire is a reference to either hell or eternal punishment. So what are we supposed to do with this warning? We see Jesus warns us and says, hey, you know, your your faith, if it's not in the right place, place if you're not producing good fruit well the only thing you're good for is for me to chop you down and just throw you into the fire that's pretty that, that seems kind of harsh and just ew, i don't like just reading that passage and just leaving it there so we're not going to just leave it there so what do we do we talk about okay we need to put our faith in jesus well what does that look like Well, we're going to get there. We're going to tell you what it's not first. So, Jesus continues here in Luke 13. So, going back to Luke 13, I'm going to summarize this in verses 10 through 7. In Luke 13, 10 through 17, and then Luke 14, 1 through 6. We have two different instances where Jesus heals uh, two different people. The first one he heals uh, in verses 10 through 17, Jesus heals a woman who has been disabled by a spirit for 18 years, and he does it on the Sabbath day. Now, this is a really key part here. Same thing happens in Luke 14, 1 through 6. Jesus heals a man that says uh, he was swollen with all types of fluids, so all of his joints and everything were swollen. He couldn't really move, but he heals him again on the Sabbath. Now, here was the big issue with that is that the Pharisees didn't like it. They said, you can't do those kinds of things on the Sabbath. You can't heal on the Sabbath. Jesus is like, bet. Really? But what he goes and shows them, he goes and asks them, and he says, well, don't you you go and help your, your donkeys if they're stuck somewhere? Do you go and feed them? Do you go and take care of them? Don't you help your animals if something's wrong with your animals? And they're all like, just quiet. So then he goes and he calls them hypocrites and says, well, if you guys are willing to go and take care of your animals on the Sabbath, why would you not help another person? And so really what the point is that he's making is, there was no such thing as a law saying you cannot heal on the Sabbath. It was something that the Pharisees added to it. So what they wanted to do in trying to keep the law, they were were relying on themselves rather than putting their faith in the God who gave them the law, they were putting their faith in themselves and and in themselves keeping the law. And and in order for them to keep the law, they added to the law. So just like a couple weeks ago, uh, when Dave was talking about the cup and he showed us this little fountain where the Jews would go and take this little cup and they would rinse it and they would wash it and basically make it clean, this was something that they added to the law in order to try to fulfill the law and try to be perfect and basically earn favor with God. But Jesus is telling them in this passage and what he's really driving at in the healing of these people on the Sabbath is like, look, you can make all of these laws and you can try to keep these laws, but where's your faith? Is it in you trying to do these works? Because you can't do it. You cannot uphold the law is what he is really getting at. And actually, in not helping these people, you're actually breaking the law. Because Jesus summarizes the law in two different ways. The first one, he summarizes the law by saying, well, what is the first summary of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if I have a neighbor who needs help on a Sunday, I'm just going to you know, ignore him because I don't want to break the law. So I'm going to make this rule not to help you just so I don't break the law but aren't you breaking the law by not loving your neighbor and helping your neighbor and instead going and helping your donkey that you know just got stuck or whatever so this is what Jesus is pointing out is that look guys we're not telling you that in order you to in order for you to avoid this condemnation or hell or being thrown into this fire like Jesus is warning about. We're not telling you, hey, you just got to try harder. You got to do harder. You got to keep all these laws or keep all these rules. He's telling you, no, no. You have to ask yourself, what are you putting your faith in? And so we're going to look at this next portion here. Jesus gives more warning in uh, chapter 13, verses 24 through 27. So we see in this passage here that many of them thought and think that their faith is in the right place. And most of them, they put their faith in themselves and what they're going to do. But here Jesus warns them again. And he said to them, so somebody comes and asks him, Lord, how many people are going to go to heaven? Here's his his answer. And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because I tell you, many will try and enter and won't be able. Once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. He will answer, I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evil doers. I'm just stuck with all the harsh text today, but don't worry. We're going to get out of the harshness, and we're going to, we're going to give you guys a little bit of hope today. Um, so what's going on here is that they're coming there asking him, okay, then tell us who all is going to go to heaven. And he's telling him, well, it's not you who are depending on your own works. It's not you. Just because, just because you have your Bibles, just because you go to church, just because your family or say, they're fellow, say they are believers or Christians doesn't mean that you are going to go to heaven. He's really driving this point home throughout this whole text, asking, where do you, you specifically, put your faith? You can't just go around and say, you know, but I do this. That's what the Jews were saying, and that's what he's getting on to them about, is that, hey, they're like, hey, but I keep the law. He's like, but do you really? No, you don't. And you can't just think that you're going to keep the law and earn your way to heaven. So what is he really telling us here what is he saying so i'm going to go to another passage here in scripture we're going to go to romans uh because i feel like here in this here in this portion of romans romans 3 paul is making the same argument to the church in rome and i feel like he really summarizes what jesus is saying here in luke 13. so in in romans chapter 3 verse 9 Paul starts off and says, what then? Are we any better off? Not at all. So this is, he's talking to Jews specifically. And he's saying, are we any better off? He's saying right here previously in chapter 2 and chapter 3, He's talking about how good it is to be a Jew because the Jews have the law; they have been given Scripture. Right before then, he got onto the Gentiles, and the Gentiles, those are people who are not Jews. He got onto them in chapters one and two and said, "Yeah, you guys are not good at all. You guys do all kinds of evil things." And then here he kind of like praises the Jews a little bit and says, "Hey, you, you guys got the law. You're good. This is great." But then he ends up in in, in verse nine of chapter three, after telling them, "Hey, guys." Great job, you have the law. Then he asks, he says, What then are we any better off? Including himself as being a Jew. So he says, We, because he also was a Jew. Then he says, Not at all. We're not any better. He says, For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And then in the next few passages, he brings this charge against them and he says, No, you guys aren't any better. You're a bunch of sinners. In the next few verses, he starts quoting the Old Testament. He'll quote the, the Psalms and Isaiah. And here are a few of the things that he tells them. He says, none of you are righteous, none of you seek God, none of you do good, your throats are open grave, uh, none of you fear God. He starts talking about uh, your, your, th- your tongues are like asp- asps and stuff like that. Basically, you're a poisonous snake. And he's basically saying that everything you do leads to death because he starts, li- he starts listing all these things about the grave and basically death and All of these things and it's like man this is a really morbid text he's telling you man you're you're only good for death and he says that none of us are righteous we only bring the smell of death and that we should the only thing that we are good for is to be cut down and thrown into the fire like jesus says in luke and in matthew but you know i'm not going to just leave you guys there i can't just leave you guys hanging In this next portion, he says that, you know, what I want to make clear is that, you know, God isn't just some cruel or harsh God that's just going to be like, you know what, I'm just going to condemn you all just because you're all a bunch of horrible people. It is true. Yes, we are all a bunch of horrible people, but even though we're horrible people, we have a God who is good, who isn't going to just leave us in our horribleness. And so Paul continues in verse 21 through 22. And he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Manifested basically means he reveals his righteousness. Uh, says uh, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Verse 23 through 26, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So I want us to look specifically at four words that were in that text right there, and these four words are going to reveal to us God's nature and what Jesus has done for us and where we are to put our faith so that first word is redemption well what, is, what does that even mean i want us to look at these words and say what do these words mean so this first word redemption means the action of saving or being safe from sin it also means gaining possession of something in exchange for payment well if you gain something for payment what was the payment that was being made that's where it comes into this next word propitiation well, that's a fun word to say So this word here means that it is an atonement or reparation for a wrong, uh, for a wrong, and it is a sacrifice. So we see that, okay, redemption means we have to make, there has to be a payment made. Propitiation says there was a payment made, and it was a sacrifice. Well, what was that sacrifice? Well, this next word we're going to look at, forbearance, Basically, it means that it's refraining from enforcing the payment of debt. This is actually a word for, like, once you buy a house and everything. This is a nice banking word. So, this is one of those words that you, sometimes you're happy to see, sometimes you're not happy to see. Once you get older, this is one of those things you look forward to because the bank's like, hey, pay me my debts. Um, but they're going to, like, they're like, well, wait for it, though. So, this word, when it comes up in Scripture, It says that there is a debt that needs to be paid, but God is being patient in receiving that payment. So it's kind of like we borrowed something from somebody, some money from somebody. They want to be repaid, but they're saying, Don't worry, I'm not going to make you pay me yet because I know you can't. And so this is God right now. He's saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to redeem you, but there needs to be a payment. I know you can't make that payment, so I'm going to be patient with you because you cannot make that payment. And that's where it comes to this last word, justifier. What does it mean to justify? Justify means to make or declare righteous. So what we're seeing here in this passage in Romans, we are seeing that you are a sinner and your need of saving and you are saved by the sacrifice of Jesus And God was being patient with our debt, but he accepted that payment that Jesus makes on our behalf. And by accepting that payment on our behalf through Jesus, we are made right with God when we put our faith in Jesus. So you hear us oftentimes talking about, hey, put your faith in Jesus. Well, what does that mean? that means that you trust the work that he has done. That means you understand that you are a sinner. You cannot do anything in the law. You can't obey the law. You can't do anything just to please God. You can't read your Bible enough to please God. You can't go to church enough to please God. You can't do anything enough to please God. So how do we please God? Well, through faith in Christ, is that we have faith in Christ that he did what we could not do. We could not please God by doing all of these things. So Jesus came in our place as that redemption, for, as that payment, because we couldn't make that payment. We have such a large debt that we couldn't even pay it. We have such a large debt, Elon Musk can't even pay it, or Jeff Bezos, or whoever you want to say is the richest person on the world. None of them could pay that debt. We have such a large debt none of us can fill it. And so Jesus comes and pays that debt for us. And that's what we put our faith in, is that he came, he died in our place, took that debt, appeased God, rose from the dead, and has now made us righteous by putting our faith in him. He has justified us. He has declared us righteous before God. So when Jesus gives us that warning, hey, you don't know when you die, Like when he talks about the tower falling or these people being killed, then he says, you don't know when you die, so where is your faith? And if you die and your faith is in Christ and you come before God, and God says, where was your faith? Jesus is going to stand up and say, it's okay, he's mine because I justified him. I justified her. I made them righteous. This is my declaration because I did this on their behalf, and they put their faith in me. So this is what he's being laid out for us in Luke 13. You know, it may not be explicit. It takes a lot of digging to understand because sometimes parables are confusing. But when we dig more in there, it becomes more clear. And we see that all of scripture points to us putting our faith in the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we humbly come before you this this day. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you continually show us through through the work of Christ. Father, we ask that uh, that anything that was talked about here, that we would take it, that we would dwell on it, that we would think about it, um, that you would do a work in our hearts, uh, that we would just think about the work that your son has done, and that that we would surrender to him if we need to surrender. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you, Chris. All right, so if you're new here